Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, October 18th. On our live Wednesday show, we talked to journalist and commentator Peter Beinart about his New York Times essay called There is a Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation, It Must Survive. Now, during that segment, President Biden gave remarks from Israel, and we took those remarks live. We won't replay them now, but what you'll hear in this episode is a combination of Beinart talking about his article and his analysis of the Biden speech, in which Biden somewhat changed his tone compared with early last week. Peter Beinart, for those who don't know his work, has long written about U.S. foreign policy and about Israel. He's an editor-at-large for Jewish Currents magazine, has previously been editor-in-chief of the New Republic, teaches national reporting and opinion writing at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and political science at the CUNY Graduate Center. He is author of books including The Icarus Syndrome from 2010 about the U.S. overreaching in foreign policy, especially in its recent wars, and his 2012 book, The Crisis of Zionism. He also writes a Substack newsletter, which might be the best way to keep up with his work, called The Beinart Notebook. Again, his New York Times essay published on Saturday is called There is a Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation. It must survive. Peter, always good to have you on the show. How horrible that it's under all these circumstances, but welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. Your article, I want to tell our listeners, fundamentally addresses something that came up on the show from a caller this week with a Palestinian scholar guest at the time. The caller asked, wouldn't the Palestinians be more successful in their fight for self-determination if they were strictly nonviolent and looked like the moral superiors like Nelson Mandela and the ANC in Africa and the anti-apartheid struggle or Gandhi's movement in India or Martin Luther King's here? And your article opens with exactly that analogy. I hadn't read it before we had that call. So would you start where your article starts in South Africa in 1988 and tell the story of how you think it and the world response to it compares to the Palestinian experience? Sure. So in 1988, there was a series of bombings in civilian areas, uh, in white civilian areas in South Africa. And the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's organization, which was waging a struggle to overthrow the apartheid system, did something pretty remarkable. It basically said, our fighters did this, and it was wrong, and we're going to try to make sure it never happens again. Now, the ANC was not a nonviolent organization. Since 1961, the ANC had been agreed to the wage armed struggle, but it try it wanted to make sure it wasn't doing so against civilian targets. And that's the moral statement that it made about how it would wage war in 1988. The point I was trying to make in the piece is if you if you want to think about how the the vast distance between that moral statement by the ANC and this hideous, horrific massacre of civilians by Hamas, we need to think about why the ANC was able to do that. It had a moral code, a moral tradition that is very far away from Hamas's. um, And that was internal to the ANC and its history. But it was also able to maintain that moral code because by 1988, 
the ANC and Black South Africans in particular saw that it was working that there were sanctions by the U.S. Congress, divestment from large number of American and Western institutions. And so it created a virtuous cycle where it was easier to maintain this moral, this ethical resistance because Black South Africans could see it was succeeding. And what I fear has happened in the Palestinian case is that because Palestinian efforts that are ethical, that are nonviolent, or at least certainly do not target civilians, because those have been defeated, in recent decades. It has empowered groups like Hamas that resist in the most brutal and immoral way. An example in your article of the West rejecting nonviolent means is the BDS movement, Boycott, Divest, Sanction, aimed at the Israeli economy and the Western establishment's rejection of that compared to the divestment from South Africa movement, which grew to be so important uh, in, in the struggle to dismantle apartheid. Can you compare the two and the response to them as you see it in a little more detail? Yes, the, the the move for Palestinian civil society organizations, I think 173 Palestinian civil society organizations to appeal to the world explicitly on the model of the appeal that black South African organizations made to the world for boycott, divestment and sanction um, was an effort to, 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 to nonviolently in the language of human rights and international law put pressure on Israel to show that um, to, to force it to re to, to change fundamentally change its policies and give Palestinians basic rights. Um, if this timing of it is also very important because that call comes in 2005 in the wake of a second intifada in which Palestinians have used a great deal of violence, including against civilians, including in these horrific suicide bombings. And so even though the BDS movement doesn't explicitly repudiate those, it is clearly trying to offer an alternative to that terrible and also self-destructive violence that happened in the Second Intifada. Now, I don't, one doesn't have to, you know, sign up to every single form of boycott or divestment or sanction that Palestinians are proposing. I, I, there are legitimate debates that one can have about academic boycotts in particular, for instance. But, but the fact that, the, that any form of nonviolent boycott, sanction, or divestment in the United States was not only deemed anti-Semitic, but in many states has essentially been nearly criminalized, where if you are a state employee, you have to literally sign a pledge not to boycott Israel to have state employment. This is so radically different from how the United States be behaved in the 1980s during the anti-apartheid movement that it has left many Palestinians feeling that this form of nonviolent resistance does not work. And that, it seems to me, empowers, it does not justify in any way, but it empowers groups like Hamas that, res that, res that, res that resist in, in brutal and immoral ways. We continue with Peter Beinart. We started talking about his article in the New York Times over the weekend, and then we got interrupted by the speech in Israel by President Biden. We will talk about both things. Peter, did the president make any news there to your ears, say anything new or position the United States in any way that we haven't heard before or that you'd like to characterize? Well, he made some news by making a claim about the the cause of this, um, this bombing of the hospital. Um, I also think the tone 
his tone has shifted since the uh, his initial comments right after the 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 horrible attacks on October 7th he's still standing with Israel but he's clearly now they're clearly now concerned about the humanitarian situation in Gaza um both because it is it is really near nearly catastrophic and i think also because they're very concerned about the impact this is having across the entire middle east where there where there's a rising kind of tremendous sense of rage at both israel and also the united states and he mentioned that he still supports a, a two-state solution um and so i i think that there were some there was there was some shift in, in there were there were elements of what he said here that he had not said before um is there any indication that the U.S. is influencing Israel in how it responds to the October 7th attack in Gaza? I think it's a little bit too early to say. Um, I think that the um, there is an overwhelming belief among Jewish Israelis um, that Israel needs to go in and destroy Hamas. Um, I think my suspicion is that what the Biden administration is saying, especially behind closed doors, is um, that uh, what is your plan uh, for once you go in on the ground? Um, and I thought it's important that, that President Biden referenced uh, September 11th as if to, to say, listen, we're not speaking here as people who have, you know, who um, uh, who haven't made tremendous mistakes ourselves. These are the conversations that Americans failed to have sufficiently before we went into Iraq and Afghanistan and learned that it's easy to, uh, oh, it's not so hard to overthrow governments, but once you end up occupying a territory, you can be there in very, very difficult circumstances for a very long time. And the harsh reality is nobody in Israel that I have heard has a credible plan for what it would do after destroying the Hamas leadership in Gaza, who is going to run Gaza? Israelis do not want to do it themselves, but any Palestinian government they try to put in, authority they try to put in on the ground would look like a puppet government and it would certainly be an insurgency that Israel would ultimately be on the hook to respond to. So I, I suspect and hope that the Biden administration is asking those questions behind the scenes. Do you have any thoughts on a best way to proceed after they dismantle Hamas's infrastructure, assuming they succeed at that? The 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 broad principle that I would the, the way that structures my thinking, and I should say my thinking is not in the mainstream, um, any no, nowhere near the mainstream among Jewish Israelis um, um, would be that uh, first of all I would try to find a way of getting the hostages out. Um, and I would be willing to, I would think, I would suggest that Israel consider uh, prisoner swaps with Palestinian prisoners who are no longer a threat. Those who are elderly, for instance, those who can no longer really participate in attacks again. Again, I don't think there's much appetite for this among Jewish Israelis, but, 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 but give, but, but it would, that would give the best chance of making sure that as many of those people who are suffering desperately and their families who are suffering desperately come out alive. And then more generally, I fundamentally see this as a political problem. The political problem is that Israel is controlling millions of Palestinians who lack the most basic rights. And unless you create 
a, a horizon of hope for Palestinians that they will have basic rights, you are going to be in a situation where groups like Hamas that um, that do tremendous damage to the to the Palestinian cause um, through their immorality, their brutality, uh, their savagery, that they are empowered. Hamas is coming out of this so far empowered. So I would look at questions like settlement growth in the West Bank. The Palestinian Authority, one big reason it's lost all legitimacy um, as an alternative to Hamas is that it was created to be the embryo of a Palestinian state. It is cooperated with Israel to prevent attacks on Israelis. It is largely done what the U.S. and Israel wanted. And it has failed massively in the eyes of Palestinians because settlement growth accelerates and Palestinians move further and further away from the basic rights of individ individual rights and self-determination that all peoples want. And I think you have to think in that wider prism if you're going to have a political strategy and not just a military one against Hamas. You call on both Israelis and Palestinians who are willing to try a new, hard as it is in the current environment, to create new forms of political community built around a democratic vision powerful enough to transcend tribal divides, your words from the article. And you write, the effort may fail, but the alternative is to descend flags waving into hell. Do any such efforts exist today that you know of? There are small-scale efforts, and they're deeply moving um, to me. For instance, there are organizations of Israeli Jews and Palestinians who have lost loved ones, uh, the bereaved parent circle, combatants for peace. Uh, these are families that have been in mourning for the loss of their family members during this during the, this conflict over the decades, and yet they've come together across the divide based on the principle that they don't want any family, Jewish or Palestinian, to go through what they go through. I find that profoundly moving. Politically, there are also people in Israel uh, who want to create a genuinely Palestinian and Jewish party. This is really important. In Israel today, basically you have Jewish parties and you have Palestinian parties, essentially. And so you don't have even one significant political party that really models the idea of a politics which is not based on ethnicity and, and religious identity, but is based on a shared set of values. Such a party would not do that well in the elections. It certainly wouldn't be able to lead the government, but it would become a vision of a kind of politics that in Israel really doesn't exist today, which is a, a which is a vision of a movement for equality that brings Jews and Palestinians together. I really hope that we see that in the years to come. We're getting phone calls and text messages from listeners on various sides of this. Um, some of these, I must say, defend violent resistance and use historical examples. One text says Warsaw ghetto, Warsaw ghetto resistance, immoral, immoral resistance, Haiti, the U.S. colonies, 1776. How do you respond to that? Well, I think there's a very important distinction, both under international law and just in terms of basic morality, between violent resistance that is aimed at military targets and violent resistance, armed resistance that is aimed at uh, at, at civilian targets. It's it's true. In, in the case of Ukraine, the United States is supporting the Ukrainians to fight back against Russia. But I would I would hope that if the Ukrainians carried out a massacre that specifically targeted 
ordinary Russian civilians, we would be repulsed by that, even though we believe in the legitimacy of the Ukrainian cause. And it's even worse in the case of Hamas, because Hamas has now developed over the decades quite a long history of targeting civilians. It's not just this, this, it just began on October 7th. And that's combined with an Islamist vision that is not really a vision of liberal democracy uh, and, and, and equality under the law. Um, and, and, and so all of that put together seems to me that even if you believe that there are situations where where armed resistance is legitimate, again, the African National Congress used armed resistance, Ukraine used armed resistance, the American revolutionaries used armed resistance, that's a far cry from a fundamentally illiberal organization that has repeatedly targeted civilians. Ari in Somerset, New Jersey, you're on WNYC with Peter Beinart. Hi, Ari. Good morning, how are you? Thank you. So I just came back from Israel uh, last night. I've been there for uh, 10 days, got there before the, the incident on October 7th. And, you know, I'm talking with a lot of people in Israel, and, you know, our friend of mine in Israel. There's a constant, you know, there's a consensus among the most Israeli and most Palestinians that the two-state solution is the solution and the only solution. And obviously there are forces on the ground that try to... Uh, prevented from both sides, from the Israeli side and from the Palestinian side. Every time we're getting close to any kind of progress, someone, either from the Israeli side or the Palestinian side, uh, does something to prevent that progress to move forward. Um, the only solution is really to, uh, uh, for the Israeli side, is to uh, elect a government that is willing to and believe in a two-state solution. But it can be done on one side. The radical forces in the, uh, in the Palestinian will never stop. You know, Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah and mostly Iran, they don't want that. And as the time we get close, to, they do something like that. So the public say, hey, we can't trust any kind of solution because those radical forces. At this point, as a terrible as it is, it might be an opportunity. But that opportunity... It's depend on our ability to eradicate Hamas. And it might be the only way to do it. It might be, as painful it is, to go on the ground. But when, we, when and if we do that, we have to come and deal with the extremists in the Israeli side. We can't have a government that believes that all this land belongs just to the, to the Israeli. Two-state solution is the only uh, solution. And we have to, in some way, you know, kind of united the world to put pressure on Israel, but it can't be just on Israel alone. It has to be from the Arab moderate into the Palestinian and into Hamas to make sure that they don't get money from Qatar and they don't get, you know, all the money that the Israel allowed to get in from Qatar goes into build tunnels and infrastructure that would, from there will launch missile into Israel. And, and I think we just, every time we just push, kick the cans for another round of uh, violence because there isn't really a leadership around the world and to push the two sides to get into this, uh, 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 some sort of uh, two-state solution agreement. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's, that's going to go forever. The, the idea of the Hamas, it's really to break the spirit of the Israeli society. And uh, obviously they got a great friend in the name of Benjamin Netanyahu and with this uh, so-called reform 
that uh, uh, helped Hamas to break this spirit of the Israeli public to uh, agree to two-state solution. Ari, thank you very much for your call. I want to ask you one follow-up question. With all you've said, I'm curious how you see the role of the United States as it's been in recent times, or as you would like it to be. Well, the United States has to demand Israel to stop any kind of settlement for any kind of uh, support, uh, financial or whatever. Uh, the very first thing, Israel is the force in the ground. And Israel has to understand that in order to have two-state solution, they cannot build settlement. There should be a complete freeze uh, on all settlement in order to move forward with any kind of support, military, financial, diplomatic, uh, into Israel. When Israel will understand that that's, you know, that they, they don't have any more support, that's what's going to happen. Uh, Israel played tremendous uh, impact on American political uh, the, the right in America, evangelists right in America mostly, don't believe in a two-state solution. So when Israel feels that the Republicans are supporting that view, they have no intent to do that because they understand that Congress would not go along with anything, any kind of freeze of, of support to Israel. So, you know, that's, that, that's another problem. I mean, uh, Another problem. All right, I'm going to leave it there and get Peter, Peter Barnett's reaction. We really, really appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I wanted to thank Ari as well. And I also just wanted to say, Ari, if you're still listening, that I hope you haven't lost anybody too close to you or that you don't have anybody who's captured in Gaza. I, um, I, um, I personally don't know that the two-state solution is any longer possible. Um, but if people want to prove me wrong, um, then then that would be great. And I think to, to, to do so requires, we are in the midst uh, under this, this Israeli government, the largest settle, settlement expansion perhaps in Israel's history. So it seems to me if you want to keep the alive the possibility of a Palestinian state based in the West Bank, um, uh, that you know, even if you didn't think it was possible tomorrow, just to keep the prospect alive, you, the United States, would have to do something to stop that settlement growth because it simply makes the possibility of a sovereign, viable Palestinian state absolutely impossible. Peter Beinart, editor-at-large for Jewish Currents magazine. He teaches journalism at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism and political science at the CUNY Graduate Center. He uh, Perhaps the best way to keep up with Peter's writing is through his Substack newsletter called The Beinart Notebook, and his New York Times essay published on Saturday is called There is a Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation. It must survive. Peter, thank you. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.